Welcome to episode 31 of the Water Break Podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to talk to two guests about being the new person in the water and wastewater industry. One of our returning guests is Jim Huckel, who is now the operations manager for Mackay Water Services in Kaloa, Kauai. He's a certified wastewater level operator in Arizona and Hawaii and a class one certified operator in Illinois with 39 years experience in wastewater. Welcome back, Jim. Morning and thank you. Yes. And we have our newest member of our team, Andrew Emerson, who has a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering. And Andrew has spent the last 10 years working in the laboratory with Humates and product formulation and manufacturing. He also has experience as an environmental health and safety engineer and product registration specialist. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. So I am very excited to have the opportunity to talk with both of you. We've all been the new person in the industry at some time. And We've all faced the epic, I, I consider it epic learning curve that is the water and wastewater treatment. So I thought it'd be fun to just kind of discuss that. And for our listeners, we also want you to stay tuned for the Wanda's Water Tidbit at the end of the program, where we share the fun and quirky trivia or information on the field. All right, gentlemen, let's get going. So I guess one of the first questions I would have is for you, Jim, is how did you get into the field of water and wastewater treatment? So... Whenever I was 17, I went to the Air Force recruiter and he sent me for an ASVAB test. And whenever the test came back, they go, we have a job for you. It's called an environmental support specialist. I said, what's that? He goes, yeah, I know. It sounds pretty impressive, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, what's that? And he goes, well, you work with the environment. And I went, okay, that sounds like fun. Um, I ended up going to basic training, went to tech school, and they taught me about water, wastewater, and swimming pools. And I really had a passion for the wastewater side. And that's how my career started. I spent four years in the Air Force doing water and wastewater treatment. And then I've moved around the country doing working at different treatment plants and doing different things all within wastewater. So since I've been 18, this is all I've ever done. That's pretty cool to have chosen it so early. I kind of came into it by attending a civil water quality class and walked out of it going, y'all need chemistry. (laughs) And just because it seemed like the complex chemistries we were dealing with, you know, with all the different additives, all the different water qualities. And once I started getting into it, I got that water bug. I just was like, this is somewhere I could learn and make a difference. That was kind of my feeling for it. And we know, Andrew, you kind of, you're falling into this. This is your first kind of experiences with wastewater. And we're glad to have you join the dark side. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Um, I've worked with Heather for a few years now. She's always been trying to get me to come over. So the opportunity came up and here I am. Um, That's good because um, when it comes to water, that's so important to everyone. So we can all agree. It's like it's really an important field to be a part of and help people out. Well, and the fun thing about it is you never stop learning. Being in wastewater for 39 years, you you would think that you would get to a point where, well, I pretty much know everything, but it's amazing. As soon as you think that you start to know a lot about anything, it humbles you and brings you back to reality that, you know, you're still learning. And it's one of the things I love about this job is it always changes, you know, from the beginning, whenever I first started to now, it's a night and day difference. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine how many changes <laughs> you've seen. <laughs> and like the amount I've learned in this last month, like it's nice to hear that 
I don't know, you guys still kind of feel the same way. It's because ever-changing is always stuff to learn and kind of grow. So it's fun. Yeah. And I'm always impressed the things that can happen in water and wastewater. I'm like, I did not even know that was possible. It's like sometimes <laughs> <laughs> some of the days I have. Oh, yeah. You're like, I've never seen that before. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know you could put that thing in that. All right. Never mind. But Andrew, what are some of your first impressions? Um, my first impressions is that all these people that I've met, all the operators and engineers and stuff, they're all just so knowledgeable about their systems. And they're all very approachable about it in the way that they are eager to tell you about it, um, answer your questions, and kind of they want to hear you out as well. And it's like a big community. Everyone seems to kind of know each other. They all kind of speak the same language. And Well, and on the language thing, it's yes and no. Because engineers speak one language, operators treat, speak another language, and trying to find that blend so that we can talk together. I mean, some of the same words we use, but some of them are different, and some of them mean different things, even moving around the country. Yeah. Right. Sometimes influent is called influent. Sometimes it's called raw. There's so many different names, you know, supernate and a decant, and different, different people use them for different things. Because I've moved around so much. It's been really interesting. Even the acronyms change from area to area. And it really makes it challenging because you're like, well, I know what I'm talking about. And I have no idea what they're talking about. Right. It's a lot of fun whenever you're you're moving around. And especially like you guys travel around the country. I'm sure you see it, too, where one part of the country, they say this and another part of the country, they say that. Yeah. So I've just like decided to swallow my pride. I'm like, I know what I mean when I say this. What do you mean when you say this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thankfully, there's a few things that stay the same. BOD, COD, those are pretty common. But they're, yeah, like you're saying, Jim, just as we have regional words like soda, pop, bubbler, that kind of thing for water or culinary, potable water, everyone's got their own little lingo. So it's important to get to know and respect the different approaches. Yes. But I love the idea that you've already got the impression that it's a community, Andrew, because that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And I'd say it's neat. You see these small towns, they kind of work together when they have problems and stuff. It's just cool to see the collaboration. So I have to ask, though, what have you found surprising so far? Because you've been going to shows for a couple of years now, but now you're like really in it. What is surprising? Um, there's a lot of camo that people wear. <laughs> <laughs> but uh <laughs> Just not, yeah. honest, they're really into the industry, especially in the wastewater side. It's surprising how uninterested everyone is in it. But it's cool, though. It's uh, fun to see because we want passionate folks working on it, and they are. So it makes me feel good about it. And then they're all kind of like nature conservationists. Like they all are in tune with the animals around them, how they're affecting them. They want to not affect them. Like we heard an example of people won't even drive through some areas because it's breeding season. So they'll park the truck and they'll take the hike over there. And so I thought that was just really, really cool. Yeah, I think that's very common in operators. What do you feel, Jim? Yeah, a lot of them are hunters or fishermen or just environmentalists in general. And it's funny because some of the environmental people are like, well, you know, you guys are contaminating the water. And we're like, no, we're trying to make it better. And yeah. we do make it better, but nobody's perfect. There are times whenever there's only so much that you can do at the treatment plant because it's designed a certain way yeah. and, and to design it for, a, you know, every 1000 year storms would be so cost prohibitive that there's nothing else that you can do. So the operators do the best job that they can with the equipment that they have. And for yeah. years, people have, have not looked at the rates and, you know, I've, I've heard the term, well, water's free. 
if you have a rain barrel and you treat it yourself, water's free, but it costs money to treat both water and wastewater. You're not paying for the water itself. You're paying for the service it was to get it to your house and all the pump stations in between and the cleaning of the water and the chlorinating of the water. So sometimes it's a challenge, right? Yeah. But I think it's an opportunity to succeed because we as wastewater workers are not very vocal about what we do. And I think we need to still work on getting that message out there, right? And what yeah. we do for the environment. Yeah, it's cool. Kind of being part of this, I get to like peek beyond the curtain and see all the nuts and bolts that really go into it. Because there's a lot to it. And they deal with these huge volumes. And yeah, people need that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. All the things that really do go into what we do. And it's everybody from the operators to the manufacturers, to the manufacturers reps, to the engineers, to the service companies who are helping us. It's, it's one giant team. Everybody works in their own individual areas, but then whenever we need each other, we all come together and get things done. I like that. It's a, definitely a team. Yeah. It has to work as a team. There's no other way to do it. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things and Andrew and I have talked about is just how innovative operators are. Do you want to share that, Andrew? Yeah, you've talked to all these operators. Um, they have these unique problems that they need to solve, and they go about it in very interesting ways. Like a good example is instead of using a partial flume, which kind of measures the flow going in and out or going out of a system, they'll just use a GoPro and they'll look at the level there. And I think that's just, it's ingenious, it's cheap, it's effective, and it gets the problem solved. Yeah, especially when your, your sensors break. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in the past, we've used a ruler to, one, calibrate partial flumes, but you can use a measuring stick in order to find out what your flows are. It's just a math calculation. So operators can be very ingenuitive because they have to be. Once the plant is designed and built, you have to be able to be flexible. And, and every plant has their own MacGyver, right? Who's able to fix anything, anytime, anywhere, because the wastewater never stops coming in. So we never get to shut down. Water yeah. plants, you know, they usually have multiple sources, so they can shut things down and work on them. But for wastewater plants, that's not always the case. A lot of plants are not redundant. I used like to use the word dundant um, <laughs> because, because they only have one piece of equipment. So whenever that one piece of equipment breaks, everybody has to come together to try to figure out how we're going to make it work until we can get it fixed. And that's some of the, the challenges or opportunities to succeed that we have in, in our field and it's getting better, but there's still a lot of systems out there that just lack the redundancy and the resiliency. Yeah. And that's the tough part because then that puts the operators into those modes where, Hey, we got to figure this out. And a lot of times we sit down and we'll just have a group meeting and we say any idea will work. So we had a problem at one of my plants where we had to get water out of a pond that was building up for, it was, it wasn't storm water. It was just runoff from a field. Uh -huh. So I said, any idea works? And one of the operators goes, how about the Bellagio fountain? I'm like, well, we'll put it up on the board, but we'll see how that works out. <laughs> you know what? If, if anyone ever does that, I would love to see it, but probably from a distance. Yes. Upwind of the, the mist. Oof, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to to attend the Water Environmental Federation's WEFTEC. It's the huge conference they have every year. But they have uh, usually a track or a section in their conference uh, programming for operator ingenuity. I mean, you can even win prizes and stuff. But it's basically, how did you hack the problem and how did you save money doing it? And I sat in one session, gosh, a few years ago, 
and listened to how an operator figured out how to use plastic trash cans as a diffuser fix because they needed air and they were getting coarse bubble and they needed fine bubble. And they said that uh, no plastic office trash can was safe. Every one of them had holes in them at when he was done, but he figured it out. Mind you, that was more of a temporary fix. That's not a permanent fix. But I was like, dang, that was smart. <laughs> you know? That's a great idea. I'm like, yeah, you don't want to wait months and months for, you know, the engineering that needs to come in and then the pump and then, you know, X, Y, Z, you need a quick fix right now. Now, mind you, you don't want that thing to get loose and run around in your system. That would be bad. Right. No, no. The operators are very in ingenuitive, whatever comes to those temporary fixes. Oh, and yeah. Sometimes the, the temporary fixes go on for five or 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Because they're like, well, well, it's working now. And we're like, well, just because it's working doesn't mean it's going to work forever. Yeah. You know, yeah. Trash cans wear out. Duct tape wears out. I mean, I had one maintenance supervisor who used duct tape to fix a pipe, a grit line, because I didn't put in glass line pipe. Then he used oh. 10 mil duct tape to make it work until we could get the pipes replaced. There you go. That's the handyman's tool, isn't it? Duct tape? Yes, it is. Duct tape. Duct tape and WD-40. Makes things stop, makes things go. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Andrew, what have been some of the challenges for you? Have you, have you been learning the world of water? All right. So I guess you both know that there is a lot to it. You guys have yeah. been doing it for a while and you're still learning every day. Uh, one of the biggest things is all the acronyms that you guys throw at each other, like SRBs versus SBRs, BOD, COD, TSS, TDS. And so I'm starting to get my head around it, but it's like an alien language or something. I'd have to agree with you with that. There's always new technologies, so there's always new acronyms coming out. I'm sure you've seen that too, Jim. Oh, well, acronyms, they vary from regions in the country, right? Like whenever I got to Arizona, they called it a DLD, a dedicated land disposal. And then they had SSBs, sludge storage lagoon, um, but they also called things BODs. And I'm like, what's a BOD? And they go, BOD. And I'm like, oh. Oh, I would have yeah. never. Yeah, you're like, Cods and bods, uh, what? Cods and bods, you know? Yeah. But it is interesting. I was at a, a membrane conference one time and we were in an introductory class. So the instructor was up there and he's talking at all these acronyms. So at the first break, I walked up to him and I said, hey, some of these people have no idea what you're talking about. I said, there's some that I don't even know what you're talking about. I said, so if you're going to use an acronym, remember you're in a basic class. You need yeah. to explain what that acronym is. <laughs> Give them a fighting chance. <laughs> right. It's really interesting whenever you go to conferences that people talk in acronyms and you have no clue. Yep. And I have a favorite acronym. It's the SHT. The first time I saw that on a control panel and it was just SHT. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Because we're in a wastewater plant. And I'm like, what does that stand for? And they're like, oh, sludge holding tank. I'm like, ah, right. Oh, that is not what I thought it was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's not the old crap button. Okay. Okay. I'm good with that. So what is your opinion, Andrew, on like lagoons and activated sludge? All right. So the lagoons, they're definitely the simpler system. Um, it's starting to kind of understand those more. And that's awesome. Um, a lot of these smaller towns, it's what they utilize and it works for them. That's great. And then I'm kind of still trying to wrap my head around all these activated sludge plants with their razes and their wazes and stuff. <laughs> And really kind of the biggest thing is it's the variability of system to system. Like lagoons are kind of simple in theory, but you go to one town versus the next, it's completely different, even if they're both using a lagoon type system. I mean, the flows can be different. The arrangements can be different. The way they're treating it is different. Mm -hmm. 
it's just variable and it could be a combination of like a waste or activated sludge plant and a lagoon somewhere kind of in the middle it's like well i've never seen that before but hey let's figure it out yeah it's not like chemistry at all is it no yeah doing formulation it was like magnesium sulfate is magnesium sulfate that's not going to change doesn't matter where you're getting it from but a lagoon is not a lagoon as heather was saying on our last trip you never meet the same lagoon twice and yeah. that is well, very accurate you'd never meet the same treatment plant twice either yeah even if they're designed exactly they alike the population of the town might be different and even there's subsections within the town that are different than other sections of the town so every place that you go doesn't matter it could be an identical system from the last place it's it's going to run different it's going to act differently you know the difference between living in phoenix and living in flagstaff flagstaff yeah. is at seven thousand feet so the bugs are a little bit different. The temperatures are a little bit different. Everything is, is changes a little bit. So it makes it a little bit more challenging. So it's not like you can run one treatment plant and go to the next one and go, oh, I know exactly how that works. That doesn't work very well. Yeah, you can't just go study or, or read a book on lagoons. Be like, oh, I know lagoons now. Because like you said, they're just completely different everywhere you go. And I think, too, what we see is we see art you know, the experience, the day-to-day -day operations experience with the science, the engineering, like you kind of have to know both to make a wastewater system truly run well. Right. And in the good old days, everything was run by pretty much art. There wasn't a whole lot of science put behind it because, again, we didn't have computers per se, right? There were, but they didn't do very much. And now we do it all by via computer. And yeah. computers are great. They make things helpful. But, you know, a lot of people just rely, well, I just go online and you can look up the formula for whatever you want. And they have calculators online that'll do it all for you. But it, that doesn't help you whenever you go to take the test because you're not allowed to use you know, anything but a simple calculator to take the test. So I always teach my staff how to do the math by hand first. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, once you have it down, then we can start using the computer and, and make your life easier. But until then, we should learn how to do it the old fashioned way. I agree with you. And the thing is, is about the whole knowledge necessary, the chemistry and the waters that we have, you know, whether it's, it's potable water or wastewater, the chemistry isn't the same anymore. We have no. so many more pharmaceuticals, so many more personal care products, so many more things that as we get better at testing and regulating and things, you know, we're finding out there's more stuff to take care of. Well, but you have to remember that's a lot of that stuff was there before. Yeah. But the one thing that you said was we can now test for it. So the testing is getting to the point where we can see all these things in, in the water and wastewater. You know, you take like compounds of emerging concern and they're oh, in the yeah. parts per trillion. Right. Yeah. So I had a regulatory guy. He's like, you know, you have to drink an Olympic sized swimming pool to get one cup of coffee whenever it's in the parts per trillion. And you don't drink an Olympic sized swimming pool for your entire life. Well, our women, are you saying you're not drinking all your ounces a day, Jim? Yeah, but you can drink all your ounces a day, but I think it's <laughs> it's like a half a million gallons. Yeah. And, and you would die. Or, you know, you had another one, you know, you had to drink a, a gallon of water from Egyptian times to today to get one Prozac. So we're, we're getting into that testing and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't fix it, but what I'm saying is let's make sure that we're putting our money because we can treat anything. It's just how much do you want to pay? And what I generally tell people is, so right now we're testing at parts per trillion. So what happens whenever we were able to part, test at parts per quadrillion, right? And then we go, oh, look at all this that's in there now. 
we have to set a standard and say, this is what we're going to meet. This is what we say is clean water. Because yeah. to say that we're going to get it all to zero, we don't have enough money to get it all to zero, right? And you don't want pure water anyway, because... Then it strips everything. Right. And if you try to drink it, it starts pulling stuff out of your body because you need some of those, you know, metals and some of the other things that are in drinking water to survive. Yeah, the minerals. Agree. Yeah. It is tough balance. It is a tough balance. Right. And there's no right answer. Yeah. I always say perfection pending and then kind of go eat a bar of chocolate. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> My coping strategy. <laughs> well, and whenever I started in wastewater 39 years ago, taking out BN, BOD and suspended solids was all we did. Yeah. Right? And then simple. came nitrogen, then came nitrogen, and then came, well, and it was simple because we had just started in 1972 with the Clean Water Act, right? Yeah. And that's whenever things started to change. So I started 12 years after the Clean Water Act. So we were still learning and, and we're uh -huh. still learning today, right? And technologies are improving and getting better at taking things out. I, I work with Arizona's ADEQ on doing DPR. Before you go, tell us what DPR is. Oh, uh, direct potable reuse. There you go. Toilet to tap. No, we don't no. ever use that word. <laughs> that. DPR, DPR. DPR. Direct potable reuse. Yeah, I'm, I'm not jealous of the regulators nowadays. Oh, yeah. I sometimes want to sing, you know, can't we be friends kind of thing. Yeah, it's challenging. Yeah. And Andrew, you had another question too. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Jim, like how long until you kind of felt comfortable doing this? Because I'm still, I'm only a month in, so I definitely kind of still feel uncomfortable. And so what did it take to kind of get to where you had your footing and you felt like you were good and confident with it. So it kind of goes back to what I talked about before, you know, whenever you start to feel comfortable with it is whenever it comes back and shows you that you really don't know as much as you thought you knew. But since I've moved around a lot, generally it takes me six months to a year to get comfortable with the treatment plant that I'm at. So if you're venturing around and going from place to place, then it makes it a little bit more challenging. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why when we're helping customers, I'm like, can we get a year's worth of data? Because your system has a different personality in the spring than it does in the winter or, you know, in the summer. So a year's worth of data and information and experience, I think is probably a minimum <laughs> for <Yeah>. some of us. <laughs> it's kind of, I think exposure seems to be the best thing that's worked for me. Yeah, just seeing it, talking to people, seeing the systems, looking at their numbers and stuff. Um, that's what's been working best for me. Um, you can read read books and stuff. I just think that exposure is um, really important. So want to get your opinion on that as well. Yeah, it's challenging. And I go to treatment plants and they don't do any kind of testing for process control. And whenever I talk to them about process control, I'm like, it's like the dashboard in your car. Can you drive your yeah. car without the dashboard? You can, but it makes it a little bit more challenging. How much gas do I have left? What speed am I going? The engine's starting to overheat. And we don't realize how much we use our dashboard. And, and process control is the same way. If you don't do process control, then how do you know how the plant's running? And they go, well, the permit says we, all we have to do is this. And I'm like, you're right. The permit says all you have to do is that. But how, that's not how you run the treatment plant. That's just to make sure that the treatment plant is running the proper way. It's challenging. And it takes a while to convince people, right? They're like, well, how long do we have to do this? I'm like, forever, right? Like every day. <laughs> every day. And you're right about the year because like whenever I lived in Flagstaff, 
we had students part of the year. We didn't have students other parts of the year. So we would talk yeah. about it and use, you know, whenever the students were there, it was pizza and beer. Whenever the students were gone, it was broccoli and kale. And you could see <laughs> changes in the treatment plan whenever the students would come and go. I, I said, darn kale. <laughs> yeah. You know, that kale thing just doesn't, the bugs just don't like it. I, I think we should ban it. But even here on Kauai, because we're over by the hotels, we have oh. different people coming and going. Flagstaff was the same way with the hotels. You have that that transient population of people who come in from different parts of the world, different parts of the country. They're doing eating and doing different things. So it changes how your system works. And it really makes it challenging for the operators. Water's fairly consistent whenever it comes in, but wastewater changes hour to hour, day to day, minute to minute. That's what makes it fun and challenging. And I kind of think it's important to think of it as a living thing. Oh, it is. It's absolutely a lot. It changes. I mean, just watching the changes and things, you get flummoxed. You're like, why the hay is this happening now? And it's like you said, transient population or someone dumps a meth products down or something like that. It can change instantaneously. Yeah. So you and I started doing ATP up in Flagstaff Yeah. because there's a difference. So we started testing for, you know, are the bug populations alive or dead? And then we started doing, we started doing DNA testing. I mean, whenever, like I said, whenever I first started, we didn't do anything. And now whenever I was in Flagstaff, we were doing DNA testing. I never in my career thought I would be doing DNA testing at a treatment plant, but it's really interesting. The results that you get. Flagstaff has some really different bugs than some of the other places around the country that are doing DNA testing. Well, and so the ATP testing, that's the adenosine triphosphate, and just that's the powerhouse of the cells. So whether you have a lot or not, tells you whether things are dead or alive. And what's really cool is training it to see recovery. I really love recovery. You know, I, I cry with the operator when the thing dies, and then, you know, it's like victory when it comes back. You know, seeing those numbers and things, I find very satisfying. Absolutely. Well, and what I usually tell the staff is, you know, whenever the plant's running, right, we could bring anybody in to run the facility. I said, yeah. what you're paid for is whenever things start to go wrong and how to get it back and how to make sure that it's working the way that it's supposed to become working. Well, one of the most challenging things I saw was uh, an area that had been flooded out and their clarifier was literally shifted off the concrete pad and pushed downstream. Oh, how are you going to recover from that? I mean, like some of the challenges are just mind boggling. Right. There is no recovery from that. <laughs> yeah. There's no recovery from that. And you know, when I worked with the FEMA for the storm recovery, there were some things where it's like, oh, throw it away. We'll just rebuild. And it, it gets to that. But for all other cases, solving the problem on site is the best thing. Well, and whenever I lived in Illinois, they put a lot of the treatment plants next to the river and then they would be too close to the flood zone. So every couple yeah. of years, whenever the river got too high, the whole plant would be submerged. Mm -hmm. And so then they would start calling around. Does anybody have any spare electrical equipment, motors, pumps? We'll take whatever you can get until they can yeah. rebuild it again. And that's where that community comes in. Everyone pitches in. Yeah. And we've seen people cross state lines to help each other. Absolutely. So what are some of the biggest changes you've seen over your career, Jim? Technology. Way back when, we didn't have probes, right? As a matter of fact, our DO probe broke, and we ended up having to do the Winkler method. 
for BODs for about six months whenever I was in the Air Force. And, and that's a fun and challenging test. So, you know, <laughs> but what used to take you a couple minutes or half an hour was a couple hour test then uh-huh. because of, of all the work that you had to do with it. The availability of knowledge online. Oh, gosh, yes. You can go in and type in whatever you want, whatever problem you have, whatever filamentous bacteria you have, and you have an encyclopedia mm-hmm. full of knowledge right there in front of you. There's online operator forums and you can go ask questions. And back then there was none of that. We didn't have computers. We didn't, didn't even have cell phones, right? You could do it on your cell phone. You could be out on the aeration base and pull that stuff up on your cell phone. Times have changed so much. It's more challenging, I think, for the operators today. Back then in life was a little bit more simple. And nowadays you're on call 24-7. You have your cell phone, so it's just like having a pager 24-7. So whenever something goes wrong, you respond to the call. And that's one of the great things about wastewater operators is, you know, they might not always enjoy coming in at three o'clock in the morning, but they'll be there. They just show up and do their thing. Yeah. And I would say even on the engineering side, there's been improvement of tools because when I was doing design, I had a good portion of the county standards memorized or printed out in a book. And it'd be so funny because other engineers would make fun of me and then they'd come borrow the book like the next week. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I had it printed on a paper. Now you can just go online, check it, get the latest and the greatest. You don't have to, you know, constantly print out revisions. I'm like, that's so beautiful. And it's just, it's wild to think about how you didn't even have computers then. Now they have these massive control boxes that look at the whole plant. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's getting to the point that the plant will run itself. Yeah. It's so like some of the roles of the operators are just kind of, sometimes you just kind of sit there and watch the box. Yeah. But someone has to do it. And it's good to watch the box, but sometimes you still got to walk out and go do the walk around and see how yes. things are running. Because if you don't do that and you just watch the box, it will come back. The box will bite you. Yeah. The box can lie. Yes. The box lies. It's a box of lies. <laughs> it's a box of lies. <laughs> yeah. Field verified. All right. So how about, how about safety? You, we've had a few fun discussions in the past, Jim, about how safety has changed. Well, and I think we talked about whenever we used to go check manholes, we used to flick cigarettes down in the manhole to see if there was oxygen <clears throat> or an explosive atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> because if it stayed lit, then there was oxygen because it couldn't stay lit without oxygen. And if yeah, it didn't blow yeah. up, then, then, you know, there's no methane. Didn't really check for the hydrogen sulfide, but gas detectors back in the 80s weren't very good. They were hard to calibrate, but now... I mean, whenever I was up in Flagstaff, we had lone worker devices where my staff walked around and if they fell down or they stopped moving for a certain period of time, it would flash an alarm and call out an alert or they also had gas detectors. So if they walked into an area, it would warn them right away that there were dangerous gases in the area. So we've gone from cigarettes down a manhole to gas detector, a lone worker device for your safety in case something happened. Yeah. All on you all the time. And so that's really interesting, right? To see how that's changed over the years. And back then there were no resources. You couldn't go online and look up the OSHA regs. And and so you were doing everything yourself and you had to learn how to do it safely so that you didn't get hurt. Right. Or get zapped or gassed or yeah. Or or, like all those other things you've done. (laughs) Yes. You know, I've learned safety the hard way. You know, I've seen people get hurt. I've been hurt throughout my career. You know, now I am a 
big proponent of safety. There's nothing at the treatment plant that you should risk your life for. We'll fix it one way or another. And what I've always told people is, you know, if you don't want to be safe for yourself, be safe for your mom, be safe for your wife, be safe for your kids, because there's somebody out there who cares for you and wants you to come home at the end of the day. So take care of yourself. But that's really hard. Uh, Like we talked about before, when you see someone go down or you see something happening and your instincts are to run in and support and help. And so learning how to do all that safely. Yeah. And I would, I always tell my staff, I'm like, if you see me in a confined space and I go down, I want you to call 911 and I want you to wait until they get there. I don't want you to come down and try to save me because what we don't need is two people down in the hole because that's just more work for the fire department. You have to have that understanding that if you're going into a confined space while the fire department might be there in three or four minutes, it's going to be 45 minutes to an hour before they come down and, and get to you. So do the things that you can put the vent over their head so that they're getting fresh oxygen. So if there is bad atmosphere down there, that they're getting fresh air. And if you can hoist them out, hoist them out, get them out of wherever they're at, do whatever you can, but never, ever go in to help them. And to be honest, you know, once you've been in the industry for a while, you know, people who have gotten really hurt or possibly have died. And so, like you said, be safe. The training actually is there for a good reason. Uh, let's, you know, not Darwin our way out of life. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Just put that extra, extra bit of time in there to Make sure you did your calibrations, your bump tests and all that stuff. It's because it's worth it. Yeah. And for the managers, they have to understand that the jobs are going to take longer, right? That's just the way that it goes. If you're going to do it safely, it takes longer to do that job safely. And that's just all it is. Yeah. Well, and, and we could go on about safety for another long time and we've done a few podcasts on it, but I want to jump into certification and licensing because that's changed too. quality of the licensing for both engineers and operators. But I love the resources that are available now, like the Sacramento State Water Program, uh, Water Environmental Federation has a huge library, the Association Boards of Certification, or the ABCs, as some people know them. And you mentioned one that I haven't used yet, Jim. The MOP 11. Yeah, MOP 11. Yeah. Manual of Practice. Yeah, Manual of Practice. So there's all different Manual of Practices. They're put out by WEF. You know, there's one for safety. So you can read through it and find out what you should be doing to be safe at your treatment plants. You know, there's all sorts of practice exams. There's my staff were using, um, they have flashcards. So every way and any way that you can learn is on the internet and you just have to take advantage of it. Like right now I go to skill builders. Um, It's another WEF program. It has 10 questions. So every day I print up 10 questions for my staff and have them answer it in preparation for their exam. And they have a fundamental intermediate and uh, an advanced one, and it's both wastewater and lab. So it's a really good way of, you know, answer 10 questions a day. You know, if you do that five times a week, that's 50 questions a week. Do that for a few months, you're up to 200 to 1,000. You can get, you know, as many questions in as you want. But it actually really helps you learn about wastewater. Yeah. And I'm going to put a plug in for the, on the engineering side, we have book called Metcalf and Eddie, which is the Wastewater Engineering Treatment and Resources Recovery book. It's very technical, but there's a lot of like, you know, when you get those weird questions and you're into the weeds, why is this happening with the phosphorus accumulating organisms? Why is this happening? It's really cool to kind of drill down into the the details, the nitty gritty and figure that out. But yeah, some of it's really technical. Uh, You might not ever use, but there are sections like once you start really getting advanced and really have those technical questions, it's a good place to go to. Yeah, I've seen, I've 
seen a couple of these. I'm definitely going to check out some of these other ones, especially that Mob 11. Sounds like a great resource for a new guy. Yeah. Well, and uh, I'm going to put a plug in too for attending Rural Water Association conferences or your state conferences because they almost always have some kind of operator training available. And some of it's fun, right, Jim? Some of it's fun. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, you have to be a little bit more selective. Some of them actually do really well. I know the rural water in Arizona, we were working towards getting more operator-based classes and, and so that it was all the way down at the operator level. Because some of it sometimes is more for supervisors and managers. But, you know, getting back to the basics, like here on Kauai, they don't have any training right now. So I've done training in my past. So I volunteered but we're going to start with the basics. Yeah. You know, what's the flow? How many cubic feet per second does wastewater need to travel through a pipe? You know, all the way back to the very basics of wastewater. What's BOD? What's suspended solids? How do you do those tests? And then work it from there to go. And then once you know those, now you can start doing the efficiencies of your plant. You can start figuring out your loadings on your plant. So we're going to start with, you know, from preliminary treatment, primary treatment, and just start to brush on activated sludge before we stop and then we'll do another class but what i've seen throughout my career is we forget about the fundamentals because oh everybody knows about that and so what we what we always talk about well phosphorus remover now you know endocrine disruptors or um you know we want to do this and all these advanced treatment processes but we're missing the basics and so people are struggling with the basics so that's why it's i think it, for me one of the most important things is to take people back to the basics what is it to be an operator what is my job do i just go out there and write down numbers and not look at the numbers no your job is to go out there and understand what those numbers mean and how it affects the treatment facility and i don't i don't know if you can tell andrew just how passionate jim is about water and wastewater <laughs> No, I can't. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> he cares. <laughs> I would say one of the things I saw online was knowledge is power and power corrupts. Study hard, be evil. And I just <laughs> die laughing. I'm like, yes, let's be evil. Know what we need to know. Well, yeah. And it's fun. You know, and the reason that I started reading as much as I did is whenever I was in the Air Force, I was sitting at my desk one night and we were on the midnight shift and I started to fall asleep. And one guy threw a book at me. And said, you know, if we were in the NOM, you'd be dead. And I'm like, yeah. dude, we're in, we're in St. Louis. So, <laughs> and, and he goes, I don't care. You don't sleep on shift. So I started drinking coffee. And usually it was a half a cup of cream and sugar. And then the rest coffee on top because I couldn't stand the taste of coffee. Now I just drink a black. But I started reading, you know, the Sacramento courses. And I read all three volumes mm -hmm. on my midnight shift because that's how I stayed awake and how I stayed awake reading those manuals because they are not very thrilling sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But I learned a lot by reading those books and you have to take the time and put in the effort. And if you do, it'll be rewarding in the end. You know, I started off as an operator in the Air Force and now I've managed facilities in three different states. I've moved around a lot. You can pretty much go and do whatever you want to do if you put in the effort. Yeah. And it's the same if you're a vendor, if you're an engineer, if you're a supplier or services, getting that training, looking for the new information, I think that's what's vital. And it makes it more fun. You know, you're able to problem solve faster. Yes. Problem solving is the most fun part of this job, right? Yeah. Whenever the treatment plant's upset. That sometimes that's after you cry and, you know, some people drink beer. I eat chocolate. So, you know, <laughs> there's that. Depends on the day. Yeah, for some people. Um, okay, so is there any other uh, tidbit you would have or lessons learned or word of advice, Jim? Um, 
find people who are knowledgeable. We use that word mentor a lot, but that's hard to do. But find somebody that you can trust and that you like to talk to. I still have people that, you know, and, and Heather's one of them. Whenever I have a problem, I might call her up and go, and I call more resources than, than you know, and, and you get yeah. that through through going to the conferences and, and talking to people besides the people that you went with. You have to be a little bit more open. And wastewater operators are usually quiet as a general rule. Uh, unless they're they're drinking and having a good time, then they're totally different. Unless they're yeah, then they're totally different. But but at the conference, they're quiet and reserved, and, and you need to talk to the people and and develop those you know people that you whenever you have a problem that you can call. I have people all over the country that if I have a problem, I can call any one of them at any time. They'll pick up the phone and we'll talk about it, and I'll be like, oh yeah, that's a good idea, because yeah. I, I, what I always tell my staff, especially whenever we first start is, you know, we're smarter as a team than we are as individuals, right? If anybody who says that I'm the smartest person in the room, you want to kick them out of the room because we're smarter as that team. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to segue into the Wanda's Water Tidbit. So Wanda's Water Tidbit is the part of our show that we dedicate to my mom, Wanda. It celebrates the unusual and sometimes brilliant things in water. And today we're going to talk about, and I really hope I say this right, Dubai's Burj Khalifa. Have you guys heard of that place before? I have, yeah. I have not. Yeah, it's the world's tallest freestanding structure and tallest building in the world. It's 828 meters, 2,716 feet, if you like feet better, or 165 elephants, give or take, depending on which measurement system you like. And it has an elevator that travels the longest distance in the world with 163 floors that they consider habitable. Guess how many people it can handle? And I go 5,000. I'll go 7,000. They're going for 35. <laughs> they wanted to design a system that could cater to 35,000 people at any given time in one building. That is insane. That is crazy. Yeah. I mean, like 15 tons of sewage per day. <laughs> Lordy. So, of course, the question comes up is, you know, well, what happens when you flush and you flush the top floor? So some of the stuff I was reading and listening to, they said it gets like to 122 miles per hour flow and that it'll hit a terminal velocity after five floors. Just like, you know, you hit a terminal velocity if you jump out in a parachute, you know, kind of deal. <laughs> I found that slightly frightening. <laughs> At least there won't be any buildup in the pipes then. True. Yeah, true. I'll be nice and clean. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, what happens when it hits the bottom floor? <laughs> you know. Uh, so they've actually put in what they call hydraulic leaps. And so they angle the pipes to a kind of temporary holding tank. And then where the water you know, drains out. So it kind of slows the water down. And then it flows down another so many floors and it goes to another hydraulic leap. And what I thought, okay, so the hydraulic lo loading part, the whole engineer in me is like totally freaking out. But the part that I liked is possible person living in that building was that the piping system is soundproof can you imagine hearing the top floor flush all day long if you're at the bottom floor i didn't even think about that yeah it's moving so fast it's gotta be loud in there yeah but unfortunately the Burj Khalifa had a problem for a while they didn't actually have the infrastructure connecting it to a wastewater system so they had individual trucks hauling the waste away to the plants and if you'll if, forgive the pun, sometimes they'd be waiting in line 24 hours to dump their load. Ah, but um, bump <laughs> here all day, folks. 
but they're they were just hauling 15 tons of sewage every day by truck well they were hauling you know as until they got the wastewater system in place so they they've solved that problem now but for a while there yeah it was a long line of trucks man that is crazy that's insane <laughs> there's just so much manpower and money going into that like huh yeah it made me question too but I was like, all right, well, kind of glad I wasn't on that wastewater plant project. That would be kind of a, a hard thing to do. But I wanted to thank you both for joining me on the podcast. I see our editors like, oh, it's about time to end. But it's always a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have you and Andrew come and talk to us. Andrew, I'm glad you're joining the dark side. You're going to love it. Hey, happy to be here. Yeah. And Jim, I'm going to try not to hate you for being in Hawaii, okay? That's okay. You can hate me all you want. I'm, I'm still going to be in Hawaii and enjoying it. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. For any of our listeners, if you have questions, please feel free to contact Jim or Andrew uh, directly. Their contact information will be in the show notes. And thank you guys once again for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was fun you. as always. Glad I got to participate in one of these. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast. Brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulants and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. You can find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.